Welcome to The Vine, a plant media project podcast with your hosts, Elizabeth Sheldon and Gina Vensel. On today's episode, we have Linda Mercado Green, the co-founder, board chair, and CEO owner of Anacostia Organics, a minority woman-owned medical cannabis dispensary in the District of Columbia. She is the chair of the D.C. Medical Cannabis Trade Association, is an executive member and strategic advisor of the Cannabis Trade Federation, and the chair of the CTF Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force, composed of the top civil rights leaders and advocates in the U.S. Linda has also served in the Marion Berry administration. Thanks you so much for joining us today, Linda. I'm so happy to be here with you. We've been trying to get this for a while, and I'm just happy that we are able to do it. I've listened to some of your podcasts and I'm a big fan. Oh, I appreciate that so much. That's so great. And you know, then if you've been listening, you know, we really like to always start um, with letting our listeners know how our guests got involved in the cannabis industry. So we thought with you, we'd love, we know that you have like a, a really, you know, colorful background with so many wonderful things that you've done. So if you can just tell us and rewind a little bit for us and tell us a little bit about your story and why you're an advocate for the plant. Well, hopefully by the time everyone gets to be my age, they will have a full background. (laughs) I I always say I'm one of the oldest people in the cannabis industry, and um, I will be 69 in January. So um, my life has been uh, very interesting, and I think that I'm just starting the most interesting part of my life. Uh, my background is public relations and government affairs. Um, I started my company, uh, the Linda Green Group, um, actually in 1989. And um, I started out doing uh, fundraising, uh, event management, and that type of thing. And then it grew into press media relations. And then um, it grew into political consulting. And, it, you know, so it just became a whole full service public relations firm and my clientele was just so diverse. Um, My clientele was uh, members of Congress on both sides of the House and the Senate, Um, uh, athletes, entertainers, uh, heads of state from Africa, uh, President Mandela doing his uh, first um, administration. uh, I was his client. He was my client. Uh, the entire time during his administration. Um, And, um, you know, it's just been all over the place. Um, And so it got to the point when I was turning 60, I started thinking about what did I want to do with the rest of my life? Because um, being in business so many years with such a wide variety of accessibility to people, it became monotonous, to be honest with you, uh, because all I had to do was to pick up the phone to make stuff happen. So it wasn't challenging, and but I, I'm Aquarius, I get bored with routine things. And um, so one night at dinner with my close girlfriends uh, who would get together um, before COVID, uh, almost every, every month, at least once a month, uh, someone mentioned uh, that DC had legalized mm-hmm. cannabis. And I said, what? I mean, we all looked at each other, you know, and being products of the 60s, we said, we should get in that business. 
And um, so, you know, we laughed it off. And next time we got together a few weeks later, it came up again. So the next morning, um, a few of us got on the phone and started the company. And uh, one had to drop out because uh, she had a federal clearance. And so she could not uh, participate. Uh, but the other two, uh, Yolanda Carraway, uh, who's a huge Democratic operative, um, and she worked with Jesse Jackson and Ron Brown and started her own uh, company, the Caraway Group, but she's extremely influential. And actually, she's an author, a co-author of a book um, uh, for colored girls who considered politics with Donna Brazil, Mignon, Moore, and Leah Daughtry. Um, and they, they are just very powerful in the Democratic here. And, and then uh, Sherry Blunt, um, who is a um, copyright and trade attorney and a partner at Fitch Evan Law Firm. Uh, we've all been friends for well over 30 years, uh, close girlfriends. And so we started a company now because Sherry and Yolanda were very busy doing you know, their work. And this was actually doing Hillary's campaign. So Yolanda was, you know, she was extremely busy. Um, I just started uh, traveling the country, um, going to all the conferences and conventions I could, meeting everybody I could possibly meet. And during that time, of course, you can imagine that was like 2015, 2016, women, were not present in the industry, let alone a woman that had a little color to his skin. Um, and so people were just, you know, why is she here? Who is she? That type of thing. And, um, you know, I just developed strong relationships. And these strong relationships that I developed happen to be the pioneers in the industry. So they became my mentors. And, but the more I, found out about the industry, the more I learned about the industry, the more I learned about the lack of diversity in the industry, the more I learned about 280E in the industry, those type of things. I knew that this is where I wanted to be. But uh, Sherry Yolanda and I had always wanted to pursue a license uh, once we formed a company. And um, that was a six-year pursuit. Oh, my God. <laughs> six years. Well, yeah. Getting the end. So much homework that you have to do. But, mm -hmm. you know, the thing is that we did not realize we were so naive in this industry. We thought that we could just get together, apply for a license. We didn't know that the regulations were set in DC as to how many licenses could be awarded. And we did. We were totally unaware that all the licenses, we wanted to be cultivators. And we were totally unaware that all of those licenses had been awarded. And now this is probably year three because we hired a broker to find a place for us to grow up. DC is not industrial <laughs> at all. So there, you know, we don't have a, a lot of warehouses and everything. So they were all taken. And um, and so once we realized all those licenses had been awarded, uh, we looked into the dispensary aspect and found out that uh, DC had awarded 
five dispensary licenses, but the regulations would allow seven. And so then we started digging more uh, to see who the owners were, where they were located, um, the percentage of medical marijuana cardholders to Ward 7 and 8, since no dispensary was located in Ward 7 and 8, which is our most undercapitalized areas of the city. Um, and it was 25%. And uh, so having worked for Marion, I was his chief of staff um, and for a while when he was um, in the council, um, actually he was one of my very first um, friends uh, that I met when I moved to DC in 1972. So we were very, very close. Um, um, I took that information to the city council and to the mayor with draft legislation in hand. There you go. <laughs> and said, um, this is what has happened. Uh, there are no uh, licenses, um, no dispensaries east of the river and gave them the data. Uh, there are only two women out of uh, that time with 15 licenses, 10 uh, grows and, and five dispensaries, one white, one black. Uh, there are no Washingtonians except for um, I think it was three Washingtonians out of that 15. So you unintentionally discriminated, but we can rectify this. So we had the, the legislation ready. It was passed unanimously on emergency vote by the council and uh, the mayor signed it into existence. So um, that's and what how year would that have been? Huh? What year was that then? That you uh, were the legislation signed in 2018, I believe. 20, the end of 2017, perhaps. So once we got that signed, I was sitting back thinking and I said, you know, this is open to anybody in the country who wants to apply. There is absolutely no guarantee that we can get the license. In the meantime, we had foiled the applications in DC to see who wrote those applications? Because we didn't know how to go about writing an application for this industry. And we found uh, there was one guy that was <laughs> just a winner. And we contacted him and hired him to uh, uh, write our application. And uh, we also um, were looking for space um, east of the river, as they say, Ward 7 and 8. Um, and it was very hard to find anybody to lease space to us because we're federally illegal, this industry is, and landlords could lose their property. Mm -hmm. um, I live in historic Anacostia. As a matter of fact, I've lived all over D.C. in my 48 years here uh, in every ward, uh, but five and seven. And um, every day I would pass this building and it was just stand out to me on Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue Southeast. And uh, so I said, this building has been empty forever. It's been empty for 20 years, but it had a lot of character to it, a lot of historic features to it. So um, we checked the tax records and found the owner. And I called him and invited him to lunch and told him what my dream was. 
and asked him if he would lease the building. And I almost fell out of my chair when he said, I'd be honored to. Oh, yes. <laughs> I had a long time to with him. And as a matter of fact, when I got the license, I was looking for contractors to build out. And I said, who to do a better job than the owner of the building? Because that's his business. He's a federal contractor, construction contractor. And so I hired him to do the build out for me. So great. <laughs> wow. Wow. And I, I was my next question was going to be about, um, you know, I was in Washington working those years, those Marion Barry years and, and yeah. legendary. And, um, you know, that you have uh, all of a sudden pivoted and, and have this beautiful dispensary. Like, oh. We did some things right. And I think that you told us, you know, here was the journey. It wasn't easy. There was no. nothing easy about no. it. No, it, nothing easy about it. And now I tell you that I live in Ward 8 and I live in historic Anacostia. I literally live two blocks from my dispensary. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. I, my community has had a lot of drug problems and still does. Um, so my concern was how was I going to sell this to the community? Mm. But because I've been so active in D.C. in uh, um, volunteering, in being a philanthropist, being Marion's chief of staff, being involved in everything in D.C., my reputation preceded me. Plus, they knew me from the community. When I moved to this community 20 years ago, this particular house that I live in, um, that I bought, had been vacant for 20 years. Oh my and goodness. literally, the, crack, uh, the drug lords lived next door to me. The National Guard was out here. And um, so I, you know, I just jumped in the community, um, hired everybody that was squatting in this house to clean up for me, to do the yard, to do this. You know, people have issues, but they're very talented and they just need a chance. So I did that and I hired them as my workers, um, helping me, um, you know, with the house and, and, you know, there were no windows, there was no heat, there was no air, there was, I mean, there was nothing. And then I started embracing the little kids in the neighborhood. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware that in 1995, I was the national director of fundraising for the Million Man the Million Man March. I did read that. Tell us about that. I'm the only uh, non-Muslim woman that was traveling the country with Minister Farrakhan and Ben Chavis. Wow. wow. Uh, and um, actually the Washington Post featured me on the front page of the style section along with Dr. E. Faye Williams um, on October 14th and the march was October 16th about women behind the march and our roles and not being Muslim and the contributions that we had made. Um, and so I saw what happened to the black community as I was traveling. Um, my generation, generations after me, once we could get educated and have any level of success, we moved out of the black community. When I was growing up, the black community, the teachers, the doctors, the sanitation workers, that everybody lived on one block, everybody lived in the same community. And um, so you had all of these 
role models and people helping each other and every family looking out for each other. But once we started moving out, there was nobody left as a role model or anything but the um, drug, drug guys and the prostitutes and pimps, you know, to be totally honest. So after the Million Man March, and I have been, um, I've been very blessed with the successful and affluent life, um, I made a commitment that I was going to move back to a community, uh, a very um, distressed Black community. And it took me five years to find the house, but I found it. Uh, even my uh, realtor said, I'm not selling you that. And I said, well, you have your only realtor. <laughs> <laughs> but I have a jewel. It's, it's an absolute jewel. Um, and uh, so, you know, that's, that it's, it's like I said, it's been a very colorful uh, life and the trust of the community, they know me. And so I was able to get support letters to go in my application from every ANC in the community, advisory neighborhood, advisory neighborhood commission. Um, from uh, just all walks of life and from my now colleagues who had licenses, they all wrote letters of recommendation for me. It's so wonderful. It, that is beautiful. It's absolutely wonderful. But it's because you truly did immerse yourself in the community, though, you know, and I think that that's what matters most is saying, you know, I am myself a member of this yeah. community and I'm going to walk to my business two mm -hmm. blocks away, like you said, you know, I mean, that is incredible. And I think that that's really impactful to members of the community to see that, you know, you can be a part of this industry. As you said, it was not easy, yeah. but you were able to, you know, use, you know, your the personal political relationships you've had to forward the progress of this entire industry. I mean, the work that you've done for diversity and inclusion around legislation, uh, decriminalization, policy development, banking, even record expungements in cannabis has been, you know, just so incredible. So just wanted to ask you, you know, and I'm sure that there's many, but if you want to talk about some of those issues that you had to face personally being a female minority um, in this industry. So I'm going to tell you, um, I made a commitment uh, to the community um, that I would hire from this community. Okay. Um, and I have done so. And um, I held the first cannabis job fair in the District of Columbia. And the people were lined up. I mean, they came from all over the East Coast, from Oregon, from everywhere. Um, I was really targeting my community but they came from everywhere. Um, and we had some incredible talent to apply, PhDs, everything. Uh, but I made that commitment. So, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I really don't know this industry. It really would be nice to have someone working for me that knows the industry, but I made the commitment and I have spent a fortune in training, um, bringing in consultants from other cannabis industry businesses, flying them in, putting them up and everything to train my staff over and over as this industry uh, changes. And the reason why I did that, and all of them, uh, except for one, lives in Ward 8, right here in the community. And the reason why I did it, because we don't have entry. There's no entry for us in the community, um, in this uh, industry. And I want to, and I tell my staff all the time, I am not creating workers. I'm giving you the skills so you can go out and enter this business, this industry, 
as you please, but I'm preparing you for it. And um, it's, it's just been, you know, really, really great doing that. But uh, the, uh, the one of the things I saw over and over again, and, you know, with all the organizations and all the conferences and conventions, there just there were no people of color. And they just weren't women. So I'm, not, I'm an advocate for the people of color and for women. And, um, and so I try to create, you know, the various opportunities. So I had become, I met, I was a member of the National Cannabis Industry Association. Um, but going to Denver, John Lord, who's the owner of LibWell um, in, um, in Denver, in Colorado, one of the first licensees and um, um, when he was the largest up until recently. Um, John and I became good friends, and through John, I met others. And um, he um, decided that he wanted to create this Cannabis Trade Federation along with some of his colleagues. And Neil Levine, who was working for John at the time, um, became the uh, CEO and Neil and I had developed a good relationship as well. And so um, they really wanted me to be the chief of staff uh, for it. And I said, well, if I don't get my license, I will be because I was in that process during that time. And of course I got my license awarded um, during that process of creating the Cannabis Trade Federation. But I was very involved with them from the design of the logo and everything. So uh, they asked me to be a member um, of the executive team as a strategic advisor. Uh, so there were only four of us. Uh, Carlos Cabello, the former congressman uh, from uh, California, Steve Fox, a box uh, with Vicente Setterberg, Setterberg Vicente, <laughs> whichever one it is. Um, uh, Heather Aziz, who's uh, just a knockout attorney in the industry, um, and myself. And so we really put all that together. So we attended the board meetings, and um, of course, the board was not diversified. I called a very good friend of mine, Al Harrington, who's Viola uh, Extracts. Um, who served on the board with me at the Minority Cannabis Business Association. And I said, hey, Al, I need you to write a check and get on this board. <laughs> and he said, oh, just send somebody for it. What's it called again? <laughs> you know, so that's, that's a friend, right? Because that's a friend. A high paying board, you know, it's $100,000 to be on the board. So um, um, Al, <laughs> you know, got on the board. And, uh, but, attended the board meeting, we were talking about the, you know, lack of diversity and, and Neil and I had been talking about it a lot. Um, and so he also talked to Robert Raven of the Raven Group. And so um, um, came up with the idea of diversity, equity, inclusion task force and presented that to the board and they voted unanimously for it. And they said, Linda, we need you to do this. We need, I said, I'm just opening my dispensary. Are you kidding? So, you know, plus do all the other stuff. But I agreed to serve as the chair of the board and we pulled together just such a great, oh my gosh, um, inspirational board for this task force that I still pinch myself 
So we have, you know, like the top civil rights leaders, like you mentioned, we have Mark Mariella, the Urban League, Jared Johnson, the NAACP, Karen Borkins Watkins, who's the vice chair of the board of the NAACP, Wade Henderson, who was his uh, leadership conference chair, Laura Murphy, uh, who um, was uh, with um, ACLU for years and uh, just very credited. And she has like Facebook and all these other corporate clients that she does diversity um, and um, inclusion for. It just goes on and on and on to people that we have on this board. And we have worked hard for the past year and a half. And we would, uh, I took them all to Denver uh, to the board, I needed to bring them to Denver because they could not, they needed to see the industry. Come on, I'm talking about civil rights leaders. You know, yeah. the only thing they knew about it was the street drugs. And so I wanted them to um, see the industry from inside out, get to meet everybody that's involved, get to meet these guys on the board. They are not racist people. They did not deliberately leave people out. It was a business opportunity. So we were there for three days. And um, so they could just mingle, see the industry, go to the, you know, and learn all, everything. And so that was really successful. And then we just went to work. And recently we, uh, the board, uh, uh, just passed um, unanimously the um, platform and the um, um, assessment um, cards that we uh, recommended for the board to adopt. And uh, so we are um, getting to work on that now, creating RFPs and that type of thing. So incredible. Really so incredible. Is. And we have these questions, but you're just, um, it, it's hard to, to stay on on the questions because because you just cover everything and you're so fascinating. I'm just uh, mesmerized. Get these questions in. So uh, you do have a unique perspective. You know, you've worked in the government. You, you now own a dispensary. So what do we need to consider or what do we need to do in your opinion to have successful federal legalization? I, I know that you know, when I talk to people, it's it's about putting the right infrastructure in place and, and, and really getting it right, not just rushing to do it. So would love to hear your thoughts about that. You're exactly right on that. We've seen what's happened in Massachusetts, Illinois, and other states that have been rushing to for adult use and they didn't have the social equity components in it, had to stop it, put that in it, you know, and all of that. And that's one of the things, you know, I, I work very closely with the city. And as a fact, um, in fact, Mayor Bowser held a press conference at Anacostia Organics um, last year, um, I think it was March or April, um, announcing the Safe Cannabis Sales Tax Act because DC legalized uh, cannabis um, in, actually in 1998. Um, Arrington Dixon, uh, was, uh, who's on my advisory board, uh, was the chair of the council and got it through, and then Congress put it on hold. I was going to say, I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah. And so the activists kept pushing, thank goodness, and uh, got it passed uh, for um, medical, actually, I think that was like in 2010, 2011, 
um, but we that got passed. Um, and uh, then the initiative 71, since uh, Congress has stopped us from exercising our authority as citizens in the District of Columbia to um, uh, to um, use uh, to for adult use. So, um, you know, we, I, I, one of the things I've been telling the mayor and now the Department of Health um, has transferred um, the cannabis program, the medical cannabis and adult use over uh, to the Alcohol Beverage Regulatory Agency, which we, the operators, asked for. So we were able to get that in the budget and it became effective October 1st. Wow. Um, and the reason being is that departments of health are not into really regulatory things. And many departments of health are still naive about the medical cannabis industry and the adult use industry. So we knew because of the lack of growth in our industry in D.C. that we had to get from under their wings. And so we advocated for it and we have it now, but we are quite confident that if um, the Democrats take control of the Senate, um, that we will be able to exercise our rights for adult use. Now, the issue is we have to have everything in place. We just can't say it. We've got to have it in everything in place, the social equity, the residency, the this and the other. I do know that they are working on some of that, but I have asked to work closely with them to bring my experience as well as others uh, who are um, in the industry here who are licensees. Uh, so the they don't know the ins and outs of the industry and they don't know everything that we have to face as operators every day. Um, so we have joined, uh, you know, we have a great collaboration with them. So that that is what I would say. I mean, now with the United States having revenue deficits, almost every state has a revenue deficit. I do expect a lot of states to um, pass legislation for adult use uh, because of the revenue, the taxes on it are phenomenal. And I mean, literally, if the country went legal, that would bring us all out of <laughs> all out of any type of downfall and debt. Um, but we have to do it right. But I do think the United States eventually, maybe in four years or less, will be totally legal. I mean, Canada, Mexico. Right. And you look around the world, South Korea was the first Asian country, you know, they, in, throughout Africa, it is throughout South America. So I'm doing everything that I can to push legalization um, totally. But those type of mechanisms, it's a lot of mechanisms that really need to be in place. So we have a lot of legislation in front of Congress. I think in the 116th Congress, we had uh, 19 pieces of legislation in the House and the Senate, all of which were bipartisan. Amazing. So that shows you how the government really wants to go forward with it. Uh, but I think initially, regardless of who is in the House and the Senate, um, I think that we're going to get some movement um, after January. 
I hope so. And it looks like New Jersey, I mean, they have it on the ballot. So, I mean, we might be seeing that. And I'm from Pennsylvania, so we're keeping a close eye on New Jersey because we feel that, you know, if 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 you live in Philadelphia, I'm on Pittsburgh, so I'm on clear on the other side of the state. But for those of the Pennsylvanians that are that close to New Jersey, I mean, it's going to be a hop skip for you just to go get your cannabis across the border. And when yeah. everyone needs to worry about keeping their local economies alive post pandemic, you know, right. it's like, come on, Pennsylvania, we got to keep this you know, in our state. <laughs> I know you push it for, but you know, in DC, as the chair of the DC Medical Cannabis Trade Association, which we just dissolved and we just started a new trade association at my request because the DC Medical Cannabis Trade Association was for the licensees in medical cannabis only. As I know, we are going to exercise our rights for adult use. They can't arrest us all. Come on, in DC, you know. But I, you know, but also it did not allow the referring physicians, the ancillary businesses, or anything like that to be members of this association. So um, three of us incorporated. Uh, the DC Cannabis Trade Association had our first board meeting yesterday, and so we're going to be, you know, getting going on that and with the various membership levels and everything. Uh, But what I wanted to tell you as the chair of the DC Medical Cannabis Trade Association, um, we were able uh, to get DC uh, to accept medical marijuana cards from any state in the United States and Puerto Rico. Now, the director of the Department of Health interpreted that the way she wanted to interpret it. So we were prohibited from accepting cards from a lot of states until she was satisfied that state was up and running. But we took that, once we became under ABRA, A-B-R-A, I took that to the director and said, it's right here in the regulations, not for interpretation. It says it right now. And he made it, that was the first thing he made effective immediately. The only thing was we get in D.C., we get a lot of requests from Virginia. Because right. Virginia, I was going to ask you about that. What's, what's up with that with Virginia? So almost every, every email, almost every phone call we get, and not only me, but the other dispensaries are from Virginia residents. Virginia started issuing medical cards before they even had anything open. I don't understand the logic there. So just a week ago, they opened their very first dispensary, only one in the entire state. And I think that's in Bristol, Virginia. So we were affected. We are getting Virginia patients like crazy now. Uh, because Can they come now? Can oh, my friends come? Oh, absolutely. I didn't know that. I all my friends as of October 21st. Come on. I, we are putting that word out on the street. Well, I am and, 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 and you can put this out also. Anacostia Organis is the most conveniently located to Virginia from every direction. You're from absolutely right. Yes. Yes. So oh, we welcome Linda, them. That is amazing news. Yay. I'm sorry. Yippee. Yippee. I have so many friends who I'm a native Virginian. I'm a yeah, native. Yeah, you Virginia. are. So am yeah. I. Wait, you are? I am from Charlottesville, Virginia. Oh, originally. that's okay. Yeah, we, we, Charlottesville is beautiful. I had a house in Wintergreen for many years. Okay. But I'm from Newport News, Virginia. Uh, yeah, that, exactly. I read that. Yes. Yes. I, I, yes. We are from the I same. Know, <laughs> 
<laughs> you made me smile because I have so many friends that, and I'm like, I don't know, get your medical card. I just like you. It's like, I don't know what's going on. What are they thinking? I, well, I think they even have a, 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 a limit on the THC amount in Virginia, maybe. In Virginia right now, I think they only allow oil. Okay. But they, I think they can only purchase oil, which is, you know, ridiculous. so it is absolutely ridiculous. So they can, they were asking me about it. And I said, well, you can purchase anything by law in at Anacostia Organics, you know, oil, flour, whatever you want. Uh, but one of the things that we do remind everybody is still federally illegal to cross state lines. But that's not my issue as a dispensary owner. No. Yeah. no. <laughs> we, we live in a very fluid, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. fly, they do everything with cannabis. I mean, it's, you know, it's not it's better than flying with a gun or, you know, Thank other you. things. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And it's medicine. I mean, we're talking so many patients yeah. they need it. And I mean, to take to imagine traveling and not having your medicine in any other capacity, if it was, you know, any kind of pill or anything else, I mean, what would you do? So it is, I just I can't wait till we can be in a place where we can safely not have to be in fear of having our medicine and traveling with it or driving a car with it, you know, having it in the car with us. I mean, it's just no matter, you know, when you cross those state lines, like you said, I mean, we've just heard too many, you know, terrible stories of people that have been incarcerated over their medicine and they were, they were patients, but they were just driving in the wrong state or driving that, through the state. You know, that, that is exactly the argument I used with the mayor um, in her office uh, was I used the data from DC in pre COVID <laughs> Uh, we had 2 million people that come in to work in our city every day, every single day from West Virginia, Maryland, and Virginia. And last year, we had 23.8 million tourists. Now, think about the seniors, the children, and everybody that cannot bring their medications here and have to suffer. But they can bring all the Percocet, Oxycontin, mm -hmm. anything like that they want into our city um, and use it rather than using uh, uh, the um, holistic uh, medications uh, from this plant. And that is exactly the argument, and that's how I got it open. Uh, God bless you, Linda. So many things you do, but oh my gosh, this is amazing. And how can me to be in this industry? <laughs> We need people like you. That's that's the thing, right? We need people who have the experience who can who can 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 make things happen. Yeah, and say this isn't right, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna write it for you and tell you how it should look, and, and understanding how that works on the government side and being able to bring that into the industry is so important. Because yeah, we have we love a lot of people that love the plant and want to get involved in the industry. That's why that line was so long for your job fair, right? You know, it's people people want to get in, but in order for this industry to be even available to a lot of people, you know, if you are incarcerated over cannabis in Pennsylvania, you can't work in our medical program, and. So yeah. that's just such a massive problem. So we do in D.C. now have something in the legislation to change that. One of my first employees, oh, God, I love him so much. And he was in his early 60s. And um, I hired him full time. And um, he was, I had been working with a nonprofit. Uh, but when he was in his 20s, 
Uh, he created a felony with a group of guys Midwest somewhere um, and robbed a bank. And they, he served 20 some years in prison for robbing a bank. He came out of prison and um, totally got his life together and spent the rest of his life, or all of us, he spends the, his life keeping young kids and other people out of prison as well as mentoring and everything. And I said, well, what a great person. His energy is just phenomenal. He knows the plant inside out. And so I hired him. So one day at work, the Department of Health called and says, you have to terminate him immediately. And I said, what do you mean? They said, he has a felon. Well, he had also been excused by the governor of that state. But I still had to terminate him. No. It broke my heart. I mean, broke my heart. This is ridiculous. And so that's not resolved. You had to terminate him, and, and there's been no way to. No, so there is legislation before the council um, now um, for people who um, have been incarcerated, people who have um had um you know minor offenses and that type of thing to be able to work not only work in this industry but to be able to get licenses when we open up that's right and i'm a huge advocate for that so i've got they've got all my support oh mine too we, yeah, I, I think yeah. it's really, really important. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that it, I would love to see that. I know that some of the bills that are um, in Pennsylvania right now include that. And we hope that, that that's going to be a part of this. And like you said, taking your time and making sure that these programs are being thought out so that it's not being rushed. And mm -hmm. but, you know, there's the other side of us. We just all want this to be legalized. And, you know, we yeah. will. But we, we want it also to be done in the right way and to make sure that, well, you know, because they legalize and then they have to stop the program. Right. You know, so why not get it right first, you know, exactly. and, and roll it out. And that's one of the things I um, um, advocate in D.C. because D.C. is the capital of the country and people are watching us. So when whatever we do, whenever we do it for everything, we have to do it right. And so how can listeners learn more about all the things that you do and how can they get to know these organizations and link up to everything? And we'll make sure that we post, you know, this links and everything on our blog. But I want to make sure that that I just like give you some time to let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you. Well, I really appreciate that. So I also have a podcast um, that has been in hiatus, even though it's been, they're using my interviews. Uh, um, I'm the only DC government funded cannabis uh, programming. That's awesome. Called, <laughs> yeah. So it's called uh, Cannabis Conversations Podcast with Linda Mercado Green, and it's on Monday through Friday at 2.30 uh, p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, it's on dcradio.gov and 96.3 HD4. And we also push it out on SoundCloud and YouTube. Uh, but we've been in hiatus because of COVID. We couldn't go in the studios to do it. So we are, DC Radio has asked their radio host um, to start um uh, recording from home, <laughs> you know, via Zoom, send it to them. They do all the engineering and everything and get it out um, because um, that is where you can get a lot of information because I pull in my contacts and colleagues and patients and medical uh, physicians and everyone from around the country. So it's not just DC focus. It's totally educational. We have a lot of fun with it. I've had 
uh, cannabis and blues, cannabis and jazz, cannabis and sex, cannabis, you know, so it's, it's all over the place. And it's a true conversation just like this, not scripted at all. Um, but uh, my um, uh, email, it, people can email me because even if they go to the um, Anacostia Organics website and there's hello at Anacostia Organics, that's fine because I answer all of those personally. I'm a hands-on operator. Um, or they can email me at Linda at AnacostiaOrganics.com. Um, and like I said, our website is, you know, has a lot of the information on it um, also. And we're located at 2022 Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue Southeast in the District of Columbia in the historic uh, Anacostia area. We're right in the um in the heart of historic Anacostia, and it's right off of 695, 395, Route 50. It's very convenient. Um, and we are open seven days a week. Um, Sundays are 12 to 5, um, and Monday through Saturday, 11 to 8 p.m. Uh, we have home delivery for DC residents, free home delivery for DC residents. And I'm all about my city, y'all. I'm sorry. Yes, <laughs> yes. I feel your passion. And we have, of course, we have uh, pre-ordering online and um, curbside pickup. That is so fantastic. And I'd love to be back on your show, and I'd love to have you all on mine. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> We could talk to you all day, Linda. Exactly. I mean, I just, I mean, really, really appreciate, you know, not only your time today, but just your passion for others and how giving you are and what a community spirit you are and how much you really do. I mean, one day. I seem to give it all away. But, you know, in this business, no one is making money yet. I'm glad you bring that up, it is a big misnomer. You were exactly right. I just experienced my first full year of operations. I opened in January 2019. So my first tax year was this year. I am still crying. That 280E tax law, honest and goodness, uh, it's really, really hard. Can you get rid of that too? Huh? Can you get rid of that too? For <laughs> that is one of my prime concerns. But you know, a lot of the legislation would that is in Congress would get rid of it. The Safe Banking Act uh, that would help it tremendously. The more Act it, by decriminalizing and descheduling cannabis would get rid of it. I was invited to New York um, to, with um, our Attorney General in, in D.C. Carl Racine. Um, year before last, uh, to attend a conference at the federal New York Federal Reserve Bank. Um, I never thought I would ever be in a Federal Reserve Bank in my life. <laughs> and it was on cybersecurity and financial crimes. Um, I thought that most of the people that would be there would be people in our industry, but there were five of us out of 200 and some, everybody else was FBI, DEA, CIA. I thought my attorney general had set me up. But <laughs> we had to stand up, say who I was, what I was doing. That's all my God, you know, this is. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, they were the president of the Federal Reserve Bank in New York said, you know, we, we want this money. We want the cannabis money because it is creating all new currencies that are not rotating and coming back to the market. 
the bitcoins, uh, all the cybersecurity stuff. We want to take it. And he said, we have told the banks that we will not take their charters. We will not close them. We've not. But of course, they, they want the money, but they are caught in a, in a bind, you know, because that's not in writing. That's not the law with us being federally illegal. So that would, that would help out a whole lot. Thank you for your work on that. Absolutely. We Everybody. really appreciate your time with us today. And well, thank, thank you again for joining us. We have had Linda Mercado Green of Anacostia Organics on our show today. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of The Vine, a Plant Media Project podcast. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts and get cannabis and psychedelic news and updates on our website at plantmediaproject.com. Dot com.